This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me home. To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. I'm ready to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, brought to you by the AND Campaign. Uh, good to be back with you for another week. Justin, how are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Uh, you know, um, based on my my sports tribes, I'm not doing so well. Uh, the Chicago Bears lost again. Um, Vanderbilt University football team lost again. So I'm struggling a little bit and just hoping that we can uh, maybe somehow pick it up uh, as the seasons come to a close. Yeah, man, it can be tough. The The Bills won this past weekend, uh, but lost the week before against against the Eagles. And so we're, we're at a strong six and two. Uh, but the, the team has some real weaknesses uh, that, that I'm not sure we're going to be able to get resolved this this season. You kind of see how we're going to uh, hit our decline. But uh, sorry about your Vanderbilt loss. I, I will say I was pretty uh, – Excited to see your your coach gave a post game interview that went pretty viral and, and you, you know just watching him I would think that that team would never lose a game I mean I was ready to run through a wall for that guy <laughs> yeah that's my man uh, Coach Mason uh, he was really excited I guess that was two weeks ago now after beating uh, Missouri I was hoping too that would that would lead to another victory over South Carolina this weekend it just didn't happen. Uh, and so we, we move on, but uh, hopefully those boys can pull it together. Well, so I'm at uh, Barry College this week, speaking at Barry, looking forward to being uh, with the students and the whole community uh, here. And side note, I flew down to Atlanta uh, yesterday, Delta, while I was doing some emails. Uh, I was also watching the new live action Lion King for the first time. And I have to say, I was like laughing in my seat. 
I thought the music was good. I don't know what all the critics and the haters were talking about. Folks, uh, so, so don't listen to them on Lion King. It's a good movie, but that's a side note. Uh, but I'm, I'm here at Barry going to be talking about civility and hope in politics. Justin, I think you're going to be at Morehouse this week. Is that right? Yeah, man. I'll be at the uh, Morehouse School of Religion. I was invited to give a lecture by the Baptist Student Fellowship. And so I'll be speaking at their maroon and black, their maroon and black tie late uh, night service. I'll be speaking about truth and the importance of truth when it comes to justice and the forward progress of history. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, got a lot of friends who are uh, Morehouse alums and just looking forward to kind of being part of the dialogue. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, uh, hey, so last week we talked about the Ann Campaign's 2020 statement. If you didn't listen to last week's episode, would encourage you to do so. And then visit annecampaign.org backslash 2020 to sign the statement. Join your voice with those from around the country who have signed the statement uh, to send a message about what they expect of the 2020 presidential uh, candidates. And so would encourage you to do that. Uh, Justin, we got quite a bit to talk about on this episode. Uh, and the first is about what has turned out to be the major debate in the 2020 presidential uh, primary on the Democratic side, and that's around health care. Uh, you know, every one of these debates, you know, when it comes to all kinds of different issues, uh, the candidates usually say, you know, there, there are only minor differences among us. When it gets to health care, uh, really no one's saying that. Uh, it, they, they seem to, the gloves seem to come off. Elizabeth Warren, who, as we'll discuss later, is, according to some, the new frontrunner uh, in this race, uh, has been criticized for being a little shifty when it comes to how she is going to pay for Medicare for all if she's if she's president for her version of Medicare for all. And last week, she rolled out a plan uh, to suggest how she would do that to sort of answer the critics. The goal is, uh, from her perspective, was to do it without raising taxes on the middle class. And there's been some back and forth about whether the plan accomplishes that just in sort of a technicality or uh, in, in, a, in a real meaningful way. Uh, and so uh, it's, it's been interesting to see this roll out. The plan is interesting. It has some interesting factors. I'll just be upfront and say uh, this conversation gets very much into the weeds. I had to do some brushing up and I had to learn some new things. And I still don't feel qualified uh, to be an expert on the intricacies of, uh, of of healthcare policy. And so I want to state that up front. But before we get as much into the weeds as we can, Justin, what, what, what do you think about uh, the Medicare for all debate in, in, in general and and about the fact that Warren was, you know, pressured and felt like she had to come out with uh, a plan for how she'd pay for this? Well, I'm glad we're having the debate and I'm glad people are getting pressed on the details. Uh, I'm, I'm much like you. I'm, I'm not an insurance uh, uh, expert, uh, but I do know enough to know that this is a very important debate to have. For those of you who've read our 2020 presidential election statement, you know that 
uh, health care is one of the issues that we addressed in the statement. And just let me take a, a quick moment to to give you an ex the ex uh, excerpt from uh, the statement. It says this. Uh, we believe in building a society that respects human dignity at all stages of stages of life, including the unborn. This includes accessible and affordable health care for everyone. Uh, Americans uh, should not go bankrupt because they get sick or die because their medication is exorbitantly expensive. Uh, and so, you know, Michael, this is something that we care about. Even if you don't agree with this plan, you should be happy that there's a debate and that uh, people are, are kind of being forced to go in depth on, on what they uh, um, what they stand for and, and what they'll try to do when they're in office. Um, it is a subject that's personal for a lot of lower and middle class Americans. Uh, I personally, Michael, uh, had a cousin who died earlier this year uh, in his 20s or maybe maybe as early. He might have just been 30 um, because really he wasn't able to fill his prescriptions. Um, And so, you know, he had a son, he had family and then that's just tough to go through. And so I like you, I took the opportunity to read through uh, Warren's uh, plan, which was entitled Ending the Stranglehold of Healthcare Costs on American Families. Uh, and, and again, before we get into details, I'll just say I'm glad they're having the conversation. We, we can talk about whether uh, she does what she sought to do, but it ha- we have to be having this conversation and don't just dismiss it because you don't like one plan or another. Our system isn't working right now. So we can either say we need time to you know, make sure Obamacare is, is fully um, uh, implemented or we need to go another direction, but we need to be doing something and, and being thoughtful about it. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, you know, I should say, you know, kind of at the outset, Justin, uh, I've been skeptical politically of this conversation uh, just because I I think there's a it, it took decades upon decades upon decades to get reform as significant as the Affordable Care Act, which uh, Bernie voted for. Uh, which Elizabeth Warren, I believe, is on record supporting, uh, uh, and to, for Democrats to sort of d- double back and suggest that another, even more sweeping uh, uh, healthcare overhaul is needed. I I just think for a lot of voters that doesn't pass the the smell test. So so that's something that that I just come to this debate with. I'm not sure a political party should pursue two sweeping healthcare overhauls within a decade. Like, uh, like I just, uh, I think building on the Affordable Care Act makes sense. That's that's building on what you've already done to sort of sell the American people on the Affordable Care Act as something that's going to, you know, forever shape and change healthcare for the better, and then tell them just years later, uh, actually. We need to go really a, a completely different route with Medicare for all. I mean, people talk about Affordable Care Act with a public option. Public option could transform into Medicare for all, but but that's a transformation. So so I just want to say that on the outset. Uh, let's look at a, a bit Elizabeth Warren's uh, plan. There are a couple interesting interesting factors that I'll pick out, and then interested to see what what you saw. I mean. For me, the most interesting thing was her uh, Medicare for All plan takes the 
the the lowest estimate I've ever seen for how much Medicare for all could cost. So uh, her plan suggests that it'll be uh, 20 uh, and a half trillion over the next decade to fund. And I just want to make sure folks heard 20 and a half trillion with a T uh, uh, over the next decade to, to fund the plan. Uh, that is much lower than that's about 10 trillion lower than what the uh, Urban Institute uh, suggested. Some estimates have gone as high as 50 to 55 uh, trillion. And so that's that's like the most that's one of the fundamental things about, you know, so Elizabeth Warren found a way to pay for Medicare for all. But it, it has uh, the cost that has built in some pretty critical assumptions. Perhaps the most critical is how much uh, savings she thinks uh, Medicare for all will squeeze out of the system, that by going to a single payer, it'll strengthen the bargaining position of, uh, of, of, of the government, of the insurer, and a cost will be sort of wrung out. Uh, another uh, w- way that she plans to pay for Medicare for all that got some I think due mockery uh, was uh, her plan suggests that um, assumes that comprehensive immigration reform will pass and that that will provide one, I believe 1.2 trillion uh, of funding to cover for Medicare for all. Of course, the idea that you're going to have a president that passes Medicare for all uh, and comprehensive immigration reform in sort of one fell swoop, uh, it takes some some creative uh, imagining uh, of its own. Uh, o- overall, Justin, my sense has been that as the plan candidate, the Warren campaign decided that they couldn't evade on this. So they have a they have a a plan now to to pay for Medicare for all. It can be picked at a, a bit, but it passes. Uh, sort of the the journalist muster, in, in other words, sort of, the, the, yes, uh, news media can, uh, has picked apart the immigration claim and a couple other things, but they're no longer going to be able to say that, that Warren is being evasive with how she'll, she'll, uh, she'll pay for Medicare for all and, and not, not, giving an answer. She, she's giving an answer now. Uh, the, the last thing I'll say, Justin, before I hand it over to you is, you know, there's this whole debate to me. Look, Elizabeth Warren is signed on to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. They, they, uh, uh, Senator Harris is signed on to Bernie Sanders' bill. And so the idea that they all signed on to Bernie's bill, but now that They've been pressed on it a little bit. They are coming up with their own plans. Suggests to me that this is another case of, that this is another example of the fact that policy is serving to undergird sort of political narratives rather than uh, political narratives serving the policy or, or sort of uh, uh like, like people sign on to Medicare for all because they wanted to be associated with with Bernie. They wanted to cut him off in this race. They wanted to make sure that he couldn't ride Medicare for all to the nomination. And so they signed on to his bill. But apparently many of them disagree with it. 
Um, I mean, Senator Harris has kind of backed off uh, completely on key provisions of the bill. But now Senator Warren is saying, well, we need to figure out uh, this other way to pay for it because what, what Bernie is suggesting is – well, then why did you sign the bill? What, like how seriously are you taking this issue if you're just adding your name to bills so that you could get it so, sort of the badge, but when it comes down to it, you don't even support the legislation? Now, I think there's a there's a bit of um, duplicity and, and conventional duplicity. We see it all the time. It's not just here. It's not just with these candidates, but this idea that uh, – you don't really have to worry about the details until you're actually in the job. In the meantime, you'll just tell voters, oh, I support this legislation, I support that legislation, so you can get the credit for it. But but those are my sort of initial thoughts on this. Uh, just looking at this 28-page white paper that the Warren campaign released on how it would uh, how it reached its estimate for uh, how much Medicare for all would cost, and then for how it would cover that cost. Uh, what have you What have you thought? Yeah, um, I'm with you to an extent. I think it presents some problems for uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, because when I read this, I see a lot of assumptions and a lot of moving parts. Uh, even for an insurance, you know, even when you're talking about uh, uh, medical insurance, um, health care, um, which is already complex. I just see a lot of assumptions that I think can come back to hurt her. So, as you mentioned, uh, Kamala Harris had already tried to come up with kind of a quick at request slipshod explanation for what, you know, details to what she she wanted when she said she supported Medicare for all that did not end well from her for her. Uh, a lot of people may say that she, you know, she still hadn't recovered from that. And Elizabeth Warren is the plan person, her thing. I have a plan for that. That's her thing, which is great unless it's just not a good plan, unless it's not a plan that you can defend. And I don't think that she wanted to have to do this. Uh, as you said, I don't think she wants this to be the centerpiece of her campaign. Uh, but it's go- it may be hard to avoid because I think when you look at Biden, you look at some of these other folks, they're going to make her answer for this for every statement in this uh, in this document. And uh, she's going to have to do a good job of it. Um, Again, when I looked at the plan, the first thing that I noticed was uh, that the plan starts off with a personal story. Uh, It starts off talking about how her father's heart attack sent the family over a financial cliff. Uh, She then goes into talking about children watching a parent die and then the family having to struggle with medical bills afterwards. Uh, this is a reality for far too many families. Uh, if you look at the plan, it says that between 2013 and 2016, health care costs were the number one reason that families went broke. Uh, the narrative throughout this plan is strong, and, and I see why they would start off with narrative. Uh, it's well written, and uh, like any good narrative, it has a villain, and that villain is uh, health care companies. But the main question really wasn't whether or not she could create a good narrative for this, uh, but whether or not the numbers actually worked. Uh, and I think that's where she's kind of running into trouble. Here's what her here's what the her plan says about Medicare for all in general. It says Medicare for all is about where doctors, hospitals and uh, care providers send the bill. Do they send it to a collection Uh, of private insurance companies who make billions by denying care? Or do they send it to the Medicare program 
for fair compensation. Under Medicare for All, everyone gets the care they need when they need it, and nobody goes broke. Right. So she's framing the issues, kind of reframing the issue so people understand Medicare for all differently. Uh, and this will cover, you know, your general uh, health care costs, uh, long term care, uh, visual care, dental care and so on. She, again, acknowledges that the big task here is explaining uh, what this plan costs and how she's going to pay for it. Again, she says, OK, what we're paying now is about 52 trillion over 10 years will be less than 52 trillion over 10 years. What's going on today, she says, is that even with that 52 trillion, you're going to have 24 million people covered uh, that are still uncovered. She's saying hers will cost less around 20 trillion and cover 24 million more people. Uh, sort of hard to believe, but that's what she's trying to do. So she kind of goes over how she's going to accomplish this. First thing she says, which Michael covered some of this, was cost savings. Some of the cost savings that she touches on are is reducing administrative costs, uh, comprehensive payment reform, uh, restoring health care competition. So she's saying that a lot of this health care consolidation where these big companies uh, come together, well, what they're doing is eliminating competition because they don't have to compete with one another anymore. Uh, she goes on to talk about reigning in out of control prescription drug costs. Very serious. I think a lot of Americans would agree with that. And then lastly, kind of cracking down on uh, tax evasion and fraud. Right. So that would be a cost savings. Again, those are some things that are easier said than done. And then she goes on to how she would raise revenue. So she's saying she would raise revenue by taxing financial transactions uh, to the tune of about eight billion. Uh, she'd have fees on big banks, uh, tax on foreign foreign earnings. So right now uh, there are certain companies that may have, you know, may do work in, in, a, in a foreign country and not really pay any taxes in that country. Well, she's saying that those will be taxed once they're brought back uh, to America. Uh, she said she'll get about three trillion from uh, raising taxes on the top. Uh, 1% of households that she'll rein in defense spending, uh, and that will give her about $798 billion again over 10 years. She got some harsh responses, even from other Democrats. So this is what Bernie, so again, she did sign on to the Medicare for All with Bernie, and this is what Bernie had to say about her plan. He said the plan could have a negative impact on middle-class job creation. He said that his plan is far more progressive, so hers isn't progressive enough, and he suggested that uh, as his plan would have that that a better way to go about raising the money would just be a seven and a half percent payroll tax. So Bernie's not running away from some of the things that uh, that Warren seems to be running away from. Biden, um, uh, former Vice President Biden, also commented on this. He says that, look, she's making it up. Basically, he says she's lying. Uh, there is no way that this plan works. He's saying that she just threw some numbers together to make it sound good. Nancy Pelosi, who she would probably very well need, who Warren would need to get this passed, says very plainly, I'm not a big fan of Medicare yeah. for all. And she tells Democrats to remember November. Um, that's tough coming from your own party, especially from people that you would need to be all the way in uh, to get that passed. Uh, again, like I said, something needs to change within our system. I'm not convinced that Medicare for all is the way to go. I feel like Sanders is being more honest about how he would pay for this plan than Warren is. I think Warren, one of the things that she does is she throws around these costs, right? So some of these costs she puts on uh, employers. So the employers would have to pay it. 
other the uh, other uh, parts of the cost she puts on the states. So the states would have to pay it. Well, what people are saying was that's just an indirect way of the burden again being placed back on the middle class because the states, if they have to pay more, they have to get more revenue. Uh, if the employers have to pay more, they they have to take something away from the employees. Uh, so she's kind of just tossing this stuff back and forth around and just a lot of optimism in these cost savings. I mean, if you look at these cost savings as quickly as they put this together, it's hard to say that they could be very accurate on how much money they're going to get from cracking down on fraud and tax evasion. Um, and so, yeah, it's just it's really tough. I think she's going to she's going to run into some problems explaining this, but I don't think she could avoid uh, uh, coming out with a plan. Yeah. I mean, what she's trying to do, in my view, is sort of be able to go as close to Bernie as possible. Will be able to say that she's much more electable than Bernie. So she calls herself a capitalist. Um, she uh, she she doesn't have the sort of the, the history that Bernie has, and so she basically she's trying to uh, you know give a you can have your cake and eat it too kind of message. And I, I do think the debate uh, this month in just a couple of weeks now is going to be you know, heavily focused on this. There was interesting back and forth, as you noted, between the Warren campaign and the Biden campaign uh, in response to Biden's criticism. uh, The Warren campaign shot back that uh, Biden was running in the wrong primary, suggesting he uh, should be running in the Republican primary. Uh, The Biden campaign uh, reminded uh, uh, voters and and Warren that that Warren herself was a Republican until she was 47 years old. And so this is, this is going to accelerate. It's also an indication of the state of the race, which we're going to talk about later, uh, later in this podcast. But uh, this is the signature debate for, for this primary and, and uh, the way that this uh, debate on healthcare shapes out is going to be a a big force in determining uh, who who wins the nomination. And so we'll be sure to to stay up on it. And just one more thing too: the whole talking point about, oh, that's a Republican. Like her whole thing has been she said the same thing about Buttigieg. Oh, that's a Republican talking point. That is the biggest cop out ever. You have to answer people just because they're just because they disagree with you. You can't just call them, you know, say that they're part of the other party. So you don't really have to respond to what they say. People in your party disagree with you and you have to respond to them. The whole, oh, it's just a Republican thing. No, you got to you're trying to make these huge changes. People can question you. It doesn't make them it doesn't make them a Republican or anything else. Just answer the questions. Uh, But, yeah, I I think folks are getting kind of sick of that. That talking point is weak. She's going to have to come up with something better. Yeah, for sure. All right. We're going to take a break. When we get back, we're going to talk uh, impeachment, give give y'all a brief update on that and uh, the, the state of the 2020 race. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And uh, last week, the House of Representatives took a, a significant step on uh, in the impeachment process by uh, taking a vote uh, to uh, formalize the impeachment inquiry. So this vote set the ground rules for how uh, things would move forward. Uh, the 
uh, it was a party line vote, with the exception two House Democrats uh, voted against moving forward with the inquiry, which uh, most the sort of take as a win for for Nancy Pelosi, Colin Peterson, who's in a district that Donald Trump won by, I believe, something like 30 points. Uh, and then uh, uh, Representative Jeff Van Drew from New Jersey, who's always been a vocal impeachment critic, voted against it. O- other than that, it was a party line vote. There, there was some question uh Leading into the uh, leading into the vote, whether some Republicans would join, but uh, House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy uh, kept them in line, and so uh, this takes away a major Republican talking point that this is sort of a ad hoc informal process. Now it's been voted on; it's official. It's going to make it harder for the Trump administration to uh, uh, to sort of refuse. Uh, uh, some of these witnesses uh, testifying, uh, and, and you know this thing is moving forward. Uh, Politico is reporting that uh, Democrats believe that they're nearing the end of closed door impeachment testimony and getting prepared to take this public. Uh, the report suggests that they're at a point in the private depositions where. Uh, uh, the uh, folks that are uh, giving their testimony are basically just reaffirming what what uh, what they they'd already heard what the uh, what the uh, committee had already heard and so uh, they, they think it might be time to to take this public uh, Justin you know I, I'm not sure too many of the fundamentals have changed since the Ukraine news broke, uh, you know, so uh, I'm not sure that we've seen any indication, especially on the Senate side, that uh, that removal is any more likely than it was a month ago. Uh, But we have seen movement on the House. We have seen the Trump administration begin to start uh, accepting that the president made a quid pro quo, but they're just saying that quid pro quo happens all the time. And it, it was fine. It was a good, it was a good quid pro quo. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll see, we'll see how that, how that holds up. Uh, what do you think about how the impeachment process is, is unfolding? Do you think that the house is doing this responsibly or, or do, do you see this more as a, a burden on Democrats heading into an election year than, than something that, um, you, you know, is, uh, is, you know, a right. Uh, and then B something that, uh, you know, is going to convince the American people that, uh, that they deserve to maintain power in the house and potentially the white house and the Senate. You know, Michael, I think it could be both that they are being somewhat responsible. I don't think, I don't think they're being reckless. I think, uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, kind of, uh, steering this will, will be, uh, will cover her bases. Um, I do think it's good that, that Schiff, you know, obviously Schiff has his committee position, but it does seem like more and more that Nancy Pelosi is kind of in the driver's seat. And I think that's what needs to happen in this particular instance. But at the same time, I don't know if that's going to be enough. Uh, so you mentioned the testimony that they're getting. And I think it's good that they had the vote um, just for the not necessarily for the party, but just for the sake of the process. Um, the, the issue is if nothing more comes out. That seems just like a really and a lot of people feel like, well, we've heard enough. Well, that's great. It's about what the you know, the majority of the American people believe. I don't know what happens if nothing more comes out of this. 
Another question that we have to ask is how long is this going to take? So if this takes too long, right, if this and you, you can already see that the administration is not going along with it. But if, if this takes too long, I think more and more you're going to see people say, hey, just let the voters take care of it. Right. If this goes on and on, you know, in the in the, in the uh, 2020, I think people start to say, just let you know, just let them take just let the people vote and take care of it. If you can get it done more quickly, then, you know, I think you're, you're you may be in a better position. But it's still going to be one of those things where a lot of this is going to be controlled by public opinion. And so you better believe that Nancy Pelosi and, and, and many Senate Republicans are going to be looking at those opinion polls to see what uh, the people are thinking. Uh, the elections are coming and no one has forgotten about those no- November elections. So you could see something where even the uh, Democrats uh, do impeach. Uh, and then don't really even depend, you know, they do something else, censure or whatever, and don't even really depend on the Senate to uh, to to remove the president, because that's probably not going to happen. So a lot's going to happen. But you got to keep your eye on, on public opinion. If this takes too long or if it doesn't seem a little more substantial, uh, de- depending on who's controlling the narrative, Democrats could run into trouble. But you also have to factor in the fact that. Hey, President Trump, as this goes on and on, who knows what else he could do, what else he could say to really hurt himself. So you, you don't have someone who has the discipline to kind of play this out and, and, and to his own benefit. Every day that passes by, he could say something else pretty crazy. But you got to watch how American people feel, because a lot of people I'm around and even myself sometimes are just kind of tired and they see so many other things that could be going on. So we'll just have to see how it plays out. I'm not exactly sure, but I do think those are some of the, the factors that will matter. Yeah, no, I, I think it's really smart what you said and, and, and really the most likely outcome that sounds right to me, but there's a part of me. So, you know, this idea that the House votes to impeach, but but basically puts pressure on McConnell uh, and uses it mostly as an electoral issue, knowing that McConnell's not going to uh, not going to have a real process, you know, six months out from an election, depending on how this is all timed out. The, the other part of me, though, is like, man, McConnell's beaten the Democrats so many times. Maybe, maybe putting the ball in his court isn't isn't the best the best situation. This is a guy who who just repeatedly seems to get the the better of Democrats, but that that might be where this is where this is headed. Like you, I'm interested to see when this goes. When this goes public, I think that's going to be a, a critical thing. Are, are are Democrats able to build the case, or does sort of oxygen come out of it once uh, once they once they roll out the argument based on these closed door depositions that uh, that folks have been privy to? I think critical to all of this is whether they're able to get key witnesses like Bolton, like McMaster. Uh, uh, to to testify in a high profile way. I'll close with what you closed with, which is that President Trump seems to be uh, sort of devolving each day that this goes goes on, and so there is a combustible sort of factor there as well. Justin, let, let's take a, a quick break. When we get back, let's just wrap up with uh, uh, some updates on the 2020 race, and it's it's been interesting to see uh, even just over the last week how things have developed. Uh, This is the Church Politics Podcast.
We're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And uh, Justin, the 2020 race is developing. We're now in you know a, a, a key part of this race where you could really start paying attention to polls and they, they start to actually mean something. Uh, they meant something for Beto O'Rourke, who uh, uh, last week decided announced that he would drop out on the on the day of the Liberty and Justice dinner in Iowa, which is always one of the sort of key dates on the primary calendar, a moment where presidential campaigns have been made. And uh, this year for for Beto's campaign, it was the day that his campaign uh, came to an end. Uh, he, uh, folks, will remember he came in as polling third nationally with a huge media exposure uh, uh, available to him, cover of Vanity Fair. Uh, He uh, was someone who had a huge donor network that was uncommon for uh, a member of the House because of his his uh, his run for the Texas Senate that drew so much national attention. And so he came in with a impressive donor network. Uh, and, and yet sort of the, the wind sort of just came out of his sails as uh, really straight out from the announcement. Uh, and he was never able to, to really regain his footing. Folks will remember in the first debate when uh, Julian Castro uh Somewhat oddly, because by that point, Beto wasn't pulling too well, uh, went after Beto and, and really cut him down to size and and made sure that uh, uh, he wasn't going to recover. So, so Beto is out. Another development in the race is that the early state polling uh, shows a uh, a real flip, shows, uh, shows Warren leading in Iowa, though it's still close. Uh, shows really a three or four person race in some of these early states. Joe Biden continues to hold strong in South Carolina, but there's a there's a feeling that and there's history to suggest that potentially if he if he loses Iowa, and especially if he loses Iowa and New Hampshire, which uh, you know Elizabeth Warren has to be considered the front runner in New Hampshire because she's in the neighboring state there uh, that those South Carolina numbers uh, will change and then we've seen Justin Buttigieg sort of have a resurgence uh, he had a very tough summer where uh, uh, there was conversation about you know is he is he going to drop out uh, and he sort of stuck stuck in it to the point where I think he's now, uh, part of the top four conversation again. He's he's polling within the margin of error error in uh, in Iowa, and his national numbers have seen a bit of a resurgence. And so there's uh, he even suggested uh, this past weekend that the race might be coming down to a two person race with him and Elizabeth Warren, and obviously uh, the other candidates uh, push back on that notion. But it, it shows kind of the confidence of where he is. And and I'll just say. He gave a uh, really impressive speech at the Liberty and Justice Dinner in Iowa, and and uh, his team had been playing it up all week, and, and he delivered in a way that I wouldn't be surprised to see reflected in the polling there. And so uh, just that's kind of the state of things. It's important to note, for all the talk about Biden sort of being deflated and whatever, you look at the national polls, and Biden is still, in general, up six points, up eight points in the national polling. 
it's some of the early states, uh, particularly Iowa and New Hampshire, which I should say are, you know, very white, homogenous uh, states that don't reflect the Democratic primary. But in these states, Iowa and New Hampshire, we are seeing uh, Biden declining a, a, a bit. What do you think about the state of the race, Justin? How do you see, you know, what do you think are the key factors that are going to determine where we where we go from here? Uh, I think you still have to keep an eye on the polls that are saying that in battleground states, uh, Biden is one of the only ones that is consistently beating Trump. Um, Warren is not consistently beating Trump and neither is Sanders is about tied. Buttigieg is not beating Trump in the, in those states. Um, and so I think you have to you have to keep an eye on that. Um, as far as Beto goes, uh, you know, I was as, as someone who has <clears throat> ran several campaigns and just worked on a lot of campaigns. I have sympathy for cam- for campaigns that fail uh, because people do put a lot of effort into campaigns. You put your heart and soul into it. And um, when it doesn't go well, it, it is hard. And so I, I usually reserve my uh, public comment. Uh, when it comes to that, although in privately, I, I may have some other things to say. I, you know, wasn't a huge fan, fan of of Beto's campaign. I think he did come off as somewhat of an right. empty suit. I mean, he he did have the kind of woke uh, conversation going on, but to many outside of your Twitter folks, and I, I don't, somebody's going to have to tell these campaigns that Twitter people, whether black folks or whatever, don't represent everybody. And so I think outside of those folks, some of that woke talk just sounded like pandering. It just didn't come out right. And I don't think a lot of people accepted it as real. Uh, and so he had an interesting kind of combination of, you know, being woke on race and all those things, which is not, not to say that's a bad thing. It just yeah. didn't come off as authentic. And then he had that combination with kind of like a, an establishment point of view on a lot of other issues that I just don't think fit the, the, the race right now. I think a lot of what he was trying to do was based on profile and, in a way, I think Buttigieg kind of took some of that away from him because he did come off as more substantive. So uh, we'll see what you may be hearing from Beto again. He seems uh, mm. uh, quite ambitious. Uh, he still, you know, has the ability to connect with people. I think he'd have to take a different tack. Right, but right, you may right. not. That this may not be the end of him. I wouldn't be surprised if he uh, does something else later on. Um, Buttigieg has come up and and has made himself, you know, that in that that maybe someone put it this way: he's the only person in the second tier. Right. I don't know that we can put him with Bernie, Biden and and Warren, but everybody else in that second tier has faded away. The, the big question is, what's his ceiling? And a lot of people are feeling that his ceiling is fairly low, even lower than someone like uh, Kobuchar because of how he's doing kind of with minority voters. Now, mm. I have to say this, you know, there's this uh, whispering campaign and, and maybe it's more than that, basically saying that black voters aren't supporting him simply because he's gay. Uh, and, I, and I'd like to push against that. Uh, you look at the uh, city of Chicago has an LGBTQ mayor. Houston, not long ago, had an LGBTQ mayor. Uh, there are several examples where you have uh, high concentrations of African-Americans where people in the LGBTQ community have done uh, well. Now, there it is very true that within those demographics, you have a lot of people who maintain the, the you know, the historic Christian view of sexuality and all that stuff. So um, that is, you know, that is something to say. But to say that they're just cutting him off because of that, I think is offensive. And if, if you look around the country, I just don't think it holds true. Uh, 
the truth of the matter is right. Buttigieg has had problems with how he's responded to African-American issues. I appreciate that he has this uh, Douglas plan and all that stuff. But people are going to look at how you handle the issues where you are. Uh, and another question I just heard within the black community when it comes to Buttigieg is how does he so easily rise above someone like Booker? Uh, I can't say that he's just done a lot better in the debates than Booker. How does this how does he get so much more money than Booker and all these other people when he's a mayor? These folks are senators. And I can't say that he's just outshined Booker, or that he's been more positive than Booker. Uh, people are trying to figure out how that happens. And he just has to make the connection. You You have to. But you have to make the people feel you. And I think this excuse that people are putting out there, maybe to shame you know, African-American voters into doing something or whatever is unfair, untrue. And if we look around, I just don't think it, 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 it can carry water. And so we need to be very careful uh, before we use uh, uh, any type of prejudice as a reason why somebody's not doing better. I mean, you have somebody who hasn't been really been attacked yet. I mean, you have someone who's right. a mayor of a not a small city, but it's certainly not a large one. And um, even an African-American community there hasn't always been positive about what's going on. That's a rarity that you would even have a mayor run for this type of position. So let's let's think about some other factors that there might be uh, before we just kind of pawn it off on something uh, like that. Yeah, I, I mean, right. So so to, to go to uh, the, the broader point you just made, uh, which is that. Uh, Outside, uh, you know, Bernie went through 2016, although, you know, many would say in that race, Bernie wasn't really vetted until uh, like Hillary didn't start really going after him until almost the spring, you know, when she realized, oh, you know, this could be a real, real, real problem. He kind of snuck up on her in that way. Uh, Buttigieg, you know, not really tested, not really criticized up to this point, Warren the same way up until this Medicare for all criticism. It's it's showing a sort of uh, a a dynamic of the Democrats and maybe in our politics uh, entirely, which is this preference or this advantage that, uh, frankly, folks with not a lot of experience and a lot of history have that voters are willing to uh, – voters are – uh, more willing to sort of imagine how great you could be <laughs> um, as opposed to looking at uh, those with a real record and with warts and all uh, as, you know, so, someone that's reliable and someone that could be trusted. And so, you know, over this these next two months, we're going to see Buttigieg and Warren get critiqued. But we're also going to see sort of how how voters react to having other options out there that have much more to critique, but also have, you know, a history is the reliability, the dependability of a Biden, of, of a Bernie, even of a Booker, as you mentioned, you know, Booker is someone who has significant relationships and through his at, through his time in the Senate uh, has been able to, uh, forge coalitions and work with groups that frankly, like Mayor Pete has never had a chance to work with Elizabeth Warren, even to a certain extent it is newer and hasn't had the sort of trust building relationships with many aspects of the democratic constituency that you'd want to see. And so the, the positive uh, for this uh, uh, of this for me is 
uh, that Warren and Buttigieg are peaking in November, not in January. Uh, and so there is going to be sufficient time, I think, to test them, to really put them under the spotlight and see see how they hold up. Yeah, and I would just end by saying, hey, just do the work. Uh, do the work, meet the people, get to know people and take care of what you're supposed to take care of, you know, under your own jurisdiction uh, before we kind of palm things off on that. Um, and I would just say, lastly, I think when it comes to this issue between Buttigieg and the black community, anecdotally, the black community doesn't always respond so um, favorably to technocrats either. Um, I'm not a huge fan of that. I, there's just not as much of a connection. Um and, and so, yeah, that, that could just I'm just naming something else that could be that could be that could play a role in this conversation rather than us just calling it prejudice and, and going from there. I think if you have the best ideas, you uh, will win and you will gain support. So. All right. Well, th- that's uh, that's it for now. We have a couple. We have some time before the next Democratic debate. We're going to see how this Medicare for all debate sort of simmers out and 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 leads up to. Uh, the next big, big clash. And of course, you know, this impeachment uh, uh, have the sense that Democrats are going to want to continue building their case leading into holidays where a lot of public opinion can change on on something like impeachment. So it'll be interesting to watch. Justin, any any final words? Just, yeah, I'd end with saying, hey, guys, take a look at the end campaign's 2020 statement. Uh, we think that if you like the church politics and you like the framework we work with, this will give you a great framework for looking or for how to look at the 2020 uh, election. So take a look at that. Consider signing it. Uh, we would greatly appreciate it. And if you like this uh, podcast, please share it with your friends and consider going to our website and donating uh, so that we can continue to give you great content. All right, folks, that's it for this week. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Have a blessed one. Came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, can yeah. you handle it? I'm scolding the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fame.